Hello, I'm Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Review podcast. podcast. So, we did a really great podcast about character actors. And I want to start talking about the first Hellboy movie from 2004. Yeah, I think 04, 03. By talking about how great the character actors are in this. And we got to start off right away with John Hurt. Rest in peace. He died about a year ago. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will know him as the uh, shopkeep from the Harry Potter movies. But he's done really interesting stuff for decades. He was the old, weird gazillionaire who you find out is driving the plot of Contact, mm-hmm. right? That awesome space movie. He's in the, in the original Alien. He's in the original Alien, and he is. Warning, here comes Samuel's childhood. He's the narrator of the Tigger movie. Yes, he is. (laughs) But he also, towards the end of his life, he got to be one of the incarnations of the Doctor on Doctor Who. Yes. They made him a in-between Doctor, a Doctor previously never seen, and, and kind of retroactively put him into... Doctor Who, and I've only seen like two or three episodes of Doctor Who, and one of them had him, and it was awesome. Yeah, he he just lends a real credibility to everything he's in. I mean, you can watch dozens of movies through MST3K, and you know, in a sci-fi movie, there's usually the professor. Sometimes he's a middle-aged guy, sometimes uh, he's a hotshot young guy, sometimes he's the old guy, and it's very uh, easy to just make that a straightforward, very bland character, you know, an exposition character. And in fact, he is the crazy old professor in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Oh, God. That's he John is. Hurt. Holy moly. So in Hellboy, he is the crazy old professor, but there is so much warmth and humanity to it. He's the first, easily third of the movie, and he's the one who makes you believe. Yeah. He sells you on this world of monsters and demons who are fighting the paranormal and all of this strange occult imagery that's just slathered throughout the movie. He sells all of it, and he does it in a very naturalistic way. It, it, it is exposition, but they are very smartly disguising it as a conversation between him and kind of the viewpoint character for the audience. Um, a, a character I really hated when this movie first came out, and I've seen Hellboy now probably three or four times. Uh, this viewing that we just did is my first in quite a while. Still hated the the bland, wonderbred, new agent character, Myers. Yeah. But you know what? Seeing this movie again, I realize that you're you're seeing things through Professor Broom's viewpoint, just as much, maybe even a little more, than you are through Meyer's viewpoint in the first third or first half of the movie. Yeah, Rupert Evans plays John Myers, and he's he's not Who? Off, he's not <laughs> offensive, but he's just such a. I joked uh, when he first appears on screen. I was like, "Oh, look, it's Budget Matthew Broderick." It's <laughs> you know, he's it's the same sort of individual. I mean, he's just doing almost like a tribute act to. Broderick's role in the 1998 Godzilla movie six years prior. I mean, it's the same yeah, role. It's yes. the same thing. And he looks like Broderick. So. Yeah, it's it's just let's get a white, you know, male inoffensive lead to put on the mm-hmm, posters. And mm-hmm. because you, you know, the studio erroneously believes you can't just let, you know, Perlman be out there as Hellboy on the on the front right, of the thing. So. Right. 
Yeah, uh, nobody was going to that movie in 2004 to see that guy. Yeah. No. <laughs> Sorry, Rupert. Yeah. And Perlman, this is kind of his graduation from character actor to right. leading man, to right. star. Um, uh, there's a very famous uh, story, myth, about the making of this film, and no one's ever disputed it, and I have no reason to believe it's not true, but we just don't have any outside you know, confirmation, that Mignola and Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, met with Guillermo del Toro, the director of this film and screenwriter of this film, and they both revealed to each other at the same time who they wanted to play Hellboy, and they both said Perlman. Yeah. So that's a pretty unanimous two votes of confidence in his favor, and, and he carries the ball and runs with it. Um, and he still holds up, you know. So one reason we're doing this podcast now is because there's a third Hellboy movie about to come out. We both watched the trailer, and the Hellboy is too small. The new actor just is physically too small to play the role. Well, I don't want to turn this into a, a, a podcast, you know, just bashing on the third one and the way it it looks. You know, the trailers come out, but it was the reason that we decided to revisit this incarnation of the character to say, okay. Maybe this trailer for the new Hellboy isn't, you know, gripping us, but does the original still hold up? Is it worth the reverence that we kind of have all put it in our hearts? And, man, we went back, and I was entertained. I was laughing. I had a great time. It's, it holds up really, really well. And I want to put a little grip to this podcast uh, very early on uh, so that, that we're not just doing another kind of sci-fi comic book podcast. This is important to go back and look at Hellboy because just last year, right, Del Toro's Shape of Water cleans up at the Oscars. Cleans up, sweeps. He gets four Oscars for the Shape of Water, which is really just a highbrow version of what he did in the first two Hellboy movies, okay? I'm watching The Shape of Water, and there's really nothing new there. And I'll get into some more of that detail as we talk about the first Hellboy, but I'm, I'm sorry. The Shape of Water is just, you know, a, a version of this story, the Hellboy story, that will play to the Oscar voting audience, and it worked. He got his Oscars for doing basically the same thing. I mean, the, the creature in The Shape of Water is basically Abe Sapien, who's a big deal in the Hellboy universe, And once you peel away the really interesting cinematography and kind of the grit and the grime of the lab where the creature's kept, and you just boil it down to, you know, the the plot, it's just a romantic comedy. It is a really boilerplate, hallmark movie, romantic, you know, star-crossed lover's story. I haven't seen Shape of Water yet. I mean, I I trust my father here, but I I haven't seen it yet. So I was was revisiting Hellboy just kind of knowing where del toro's legacy has taken him where he's esteemed in the culture now but i haven't i haven't seen that i think the last del toro that i saw was the first pacific rim film Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so i i have not caught up all the way on del toro's filmography but this is uh we actually went back through his career we we went on imdb and we looked up you know he gets his start doing a lot of uh spanish language films yep and then he moves on to doing Blade 2. They give him the reins of Blade 2. And that is a smash success, arguably even more successful than the first one in terms of kind of how people perceive Blade. It's, mm. you know, he's got a bunch of weird Del Toro monster designs. And, and you know Wesley Snipes turns in another great performance as Blade because he is that character. It's not difficult for him. And 
after that, they the you know, studios trust Del Toro, so they give him a check to make Hellboy. And he collaborates with Mignola, and they really, you know, this is really his show. And I think from here, after this, he makes Pan's Labyrinth, I believe. Yes. And then he makes Hellboy 2. And you can see his signature starting to be written larger yes. and larger on these things until finally you get to, um, might be Hellboy 2 or it might be Pacific Rim. Where the first, uh, I'm trying to remember which movie is the first one to really emphasize that it is a Del Toro picture. That this is, you know, his name is now something you can put on a marquee as a director, which is a very rare tier of uh, directors. That oh, you I think it. That. I think that really had been solidified by Pan's Labyrinth. I think the first Hellboy and Pan, and then he really cements it with the second Hellboy. It's, those three movies really are what get him the career that he has now, and so. In relating it to The Shape of Water, you know that uh, my view is that a lot of Oscars get given out way after they were originally deserved. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know. Corrective Oscars. They're corrective Oscars. You know, Paul Newman gets an Oscar for The Color of Money when he should have gotten it 20 years earlier. Yeah. Jeff Bridges gets one for Crazy Heart, which I got to tell you, nobody saw Crazy Heart. Yeah. But they didn't give it to him for Lebowski, so... Right. Time right. to pony up. Right. So the same thing with The Shape of Water. They should have given uh, Del Toro an Oscar or some kind of recognition for the first Hellboy. I really do think it's that good. It's not just a comic book movie. And here's the kicker. Watching it again, like we just did, the romance in The Shape of Water is no better than the romance story at the heart of Hellboy. Yeah, between Hellboy and, and Liz Sherman. I mean, um, who's played by Selma Blair, the the Selma Blair Witch Project, um, and she does a great job with not a lot in her part. Um, you know, she's got to be reactive, but the the romance is critical to humanizing the Hellboy character, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got all this mystic stuff swirling around him. He's super strong in terms of strength. You know, he's clearly the hero of the story, but his vulnerability comes in his relationship to Liz. Mm-hmm. And Liz has all of this backstory uh, that that Selma's got to bring to the character without a lot of dialogue. Yeah. And that's what I really liked about this movie is noticing how much of the story Del Toro tells without dialogue. Many yeah. scenes go with very, very few words. Yeah. He does a lot of showing, not telling. Which is great storytelling um, in movies. Yeah. And even when he is presenting exposition, a lot of the times, like we talked about, it is through John Hurt, and it feels very natural to the scene. There's a really uh, creepy villain in this, uh, a Nazi who's made of sand, basically, because his blood has turned to dust, and it's just this crazy clockwork. It's it's evil steampunk Nazi ninjas. Yeah, which is, which just, is what you go to a Del Toro movie to like, see. Only only could have come out of his brain. Like, that character, that villain is in the comics, but he's a lot blander. Yeah. He's basically just a Nazi in a gas mask, and you know, that's kind of scary, but eh, yeah. not too inventive. But, but seeing Del him Toro in motion, just Yeah, Del Toro just oh. cranked. Like, at one point, he just climbs down this wall, and he does this crazy, like, like arachnid sort of, like, flip <laughs> to right himself. And just, <laughs> so... You know, John Hurt's doing an autopsy on what he thinks is a dead sand Nazi, and so he's giving you the sand Nazi's backstory as yeah. he's, you know, slicing him open and taking out all the little parts, and, and it feels like something someone who was doing an autopsy would do. He, It's just so... But it also doesn't go on forever. Yeah. 
right? I mean, that dialogue is really tight. It's, um, it's very light on its feet. The script is very light yeah. on its feet. Never lets you get too bogged down in anything. So, um, should, should we talk about, about the other character actor? Doug Jones? Poor no. Doug. <laughs> Poor Doug. No can, love for Doug. You can talk about Doug. So Doug Jones is the, is the guy who's uh, underneath all the Abe Sapien makeup. Doug Jones has gone on to do... I mean, this really raises his star profile because he gets a lot more to do in the second one. Mm-hmm. And then he is also a lot of the monsters in Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, now he's on Star Trek, uh, the new Star Trek show. Mm. Um, on he... all-access CBS? <laughs> Has anybody seen that movie? Has anyone actually subscribed to CBS all-access? Yeah, anyway, all right. I don't know. Um, I watched the trailers. Oh, God. And um, he's also the creature in Shape of Water. And so Doug Jones has kind of become, for guys in plastic suits, kind of what... <laughs> Hold on, I'm making a point here. He's kind of like Andy Circus is for motion capture. Yeah, yeah. There's this preeminent actor in each yeah. of these specific weird sub-category <laughs> of special If you want a fish man, Doug Jones is Doug your Jones guy. Doug Jones is your guy. <laughs> I've got my gills ready to go. So it's it's wild. It's 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 just crazy to see him floating around in a little tank, and you know he's under like a bunch of prosthetics, and and it's it's crazy, 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 crazy how much effort goes into every aspect of this film. Uh, but I think what my father's leading up to is I, I I want you to know there's money in the fish tank. There's always money in the fish tank in the freak tank. <laughs> um, so Jeffrey Tambor's in here, and the only reason he's in this movie because. He does such a great job playing the exact same character in Muppets from Space. He's the same character. In fact, my thesis is that this Hellboy film takes place in the same fictional universe as Muppets from Space. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's the only way to explain the weirdness of Muppets from Space. It's like, where did Godzo come from? He's a spawn of the Ortu Jahagd. Yeah, right. He's one of the old ones. Awesome. So, but yeah, Jeffrey Tambor plays the same role that he played in Muppets from Space. And he's just this slimy, loser, bureaucrat guy who's trying to rein in the BPRD, the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. And... Obviously, they don't care if... Yeah, at first, they don't care if he lives or dies. He's just this bureaucrat who's coming in and trying to and get again, in their face. This is what we were talking about on our, our uh, Great Character Actors uh, podcast, right? So you've got Hurt playing the old professor, right? A, a real stereotypical role in a big-budget Hollywood picture. And the annoying bureaucrat is another stereotypical character. You've seen dozens of them across many, many movies. And so it's easy to just phone that in. But Tambor is really uh, interesting. He's unnerving at some points, right? He's really... uh, At some points, he's a danger to Hellboy and what he's doing. Um, But you can also... the lives of, of several BPRD agents. Right, uh, but you can also see his motivation. I think that's what makes a really great character actor is they're not just saying the lines and filling in spaces in a movie, but you can see that Tambor is actually trying to live up to Dr. Broom, right? You can see that he's a little scared underneath all of this bravado. So that's a great actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, despite what's happened since. Yeah. 
but it is uh yeah it holds up really well it's very light on its feet uh, it's got a bunch of actors and i'm always fascinated by this it's always got a bunch of it's got a bunch of actors who did this and then seem to have disappeared <laughs> and i don't just mean like oh their star fell and now they're doing hallmark movies i'm talking they got maybe two imdb credits past this and then they just flitter away into the ether hmm. so the main villain of this is Rasputin and Rasputin is is you know played by an actor whose name I can't even remember because he he did a good job in this though let's uh, give a nod to the CGI so 2004 you know that's almost 15 years ago and uh, the whole tone of the movie uh, which you would recognize now as oh that's a del Toro movie uh, but this is a great movie because it balances between his artistic vision in movies with the artistic vision of the guy who creates all of this in the comic book form, right? Mike Mignola has a very dark, bold sensibility, and they mesh. The two artistic visions mesh really well in this movie, and that helps the CGI hold up, right? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff that's filmed in the dark. It's filmed at night. The palette of the movie is in... Uh, deep blues or really dark browns and it really holds up very well for something that's so dependent on you know these created giant monsters near the end of the movie right i mean abe sapien you know doug jones is really in there and uh, ron perlman is really inside of what you're seeing with hellboy right he's had to spend four hours every day getting made up to be hellboy but you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in this movie that is pure CGI. And some of the other CGI from that era does not hold up so well. Um, but this does, I think, because of the cinematography and the way that Del Toro wanted to tell this story. So, you know, there's a famous line. It's in the trailer. It comes early in the movie where uh, Dr. Broom says there are things that really do go bump in the night and we bump back. Well, so there you go. There's the thesis of the whole movie. And... It's filmed at night. It's actually quite rare when you see Hellboy in daylight. I think one of the only scenes is when they're walking around the cemetery in Russia. Yeah, the Hulk, uh, by the way, the actor who played uh, Rasputin is uh, Carl Rodin. I I should apologize to him on the off chance that he ever listens to this. He's done plenty of stuff since then. Uh, It's just not nearly as, as the same profile. I mean, he's, he's really, he has a lot of screen time and a lot to do and a lot to say and, um, well, and again, Rasputin, uh, like these other character actor bits that we're talking about, the old scientist, the annoying bureaucrat, Rasputin is your go-to villain yeah. for a whole bunch of movies, right? Yeah. He's really easy to just make into this supernatural, I-can-do-anything guy. Um, we've seen quite a few screen versions of him, all the way down to the animated Anastasia. Oh, man. But you know what? So an actor has to really do well to breathe some life, some real creepiness into this uh, stereotype, and this guy does. Yeah, all while wearing the most 2004 glasses that you possibly can. <laughs> They're these like little square shades. Is this the Matrix? It's so Matrix. It's so Matrix. I love it. Like Rasputin <laughs> resurrects, and he's like... Get me to the Gucci store. (laughs) Um, So actually, I was not thinking of the actor who played Rasputin, and I'll keep this note short. It's uh, Biddy Hodson who plays uh, Ilya 
Hopstein. The Nazi babe. The evil Nazi babe, because you got to have one of those as well. Biddy Hodson is the one who does this. She's got a few credits before that and two credits after that and just leaves. Yeah. She, she's, she's out of the industry by 06. And she does a great job here playing a really creepy, evil Nazi woman. Um, yeah. And I was talking with my father as we were watching the, the introductory scene to this movie, which takes place in 1944. All the Nazis in this movie, and I love this. This is not a knock. These are all of the Nazis from Indiana Jones, you know, just given 20 years in the pop culture tumbler. You know, yeah. it's just, yeah, they're thought- a little bit weirder. They're a little bit more over the top, even more from Indiana Jones. But it's coming from that same pulpy place. Yeah, I thought that was a great observation uh, that you had as we're watching it. You know, the beginning of this movie basically is the same thing as the ending of the first Indiana Jones movie, yeah. right? Where where that climaxes, this movie starts. It even so, has a dude whose face melts. <laughs> so if that's going to be the start of your supernatural movie, man, you really have to tell a great story and have great characters and, and have something to show and say if you're going to start with what is the end of one of the greatest action-adventure movies ever made. Yeah. And Del Toro really holds up. The introductory action scene actually really deserves its own, you know, two-minute conversation here on the podcast because it is, it's, be- I mean, it's it's not beautifully shot. It's really dark. It's really claustrophobic. It's very difficult to see anything, and it's it's chaotic. It's a mess, and that's how combat is at nighttime. It's yeah. it's very very realistic, despite the presence of an evil sand Nazi and a portal to the old ones. It's. You know, a bunch of American soldiers tossing grenades and shooting stuff, and it's dimly lit, and it 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 just it feels very visceral, and it really works to establish the color palette of the movie, mm-hmm. to establish the tone, to establish all the occult the ideas. Oh yeah, the young actor who plays who plays young John Hurt, who in this flashback, he does a great job. I mean, yeah. he really has to be your introduction to that character. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. slams it out of the park. Yeah. And we looked him up on IMDb, and you told me he, he also disappears. Yeah. And that's a damn shame. Because he, like I said, he has to give you that first interaction between uh, you know, the Doctor and Hellboy. He's got to establish kind of where the BPRD is in relation mm-hmm. to the traditional military and CIA and whatnot. He has and, to establish the correct pronunciation for Roosevelt. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's, a, there's very important stuff. There's a lot going on there, and I really enjoy that scene. Yeah. Um, so here's the highest compliment that I can pay. We've talked about how this movie, you know, launches Del Toro forward in some important ways. Uh, all these comments about the people who have disappeared, I think, just point you back to a great director, right? If he gets them to do great things in this movie, but then they don't really go on to do other stuff, well, I think that still just pins how great this movie is with this director. Mm-hmm. But the other compliment that I can say is this watching this again makes me want to go back and read the source material. Yeah, and that's I've what... got I've got Hellboy comics for years. I stopped buying them a couple years ago just because I felt like the story had sprawled so far that it wasn't going anywhere. I was spending all this money every month for like four different titles in the Hellboy universe and it just wasn't going anywhere. Uh, but the first stuff is really tight. Character's been around since the mid-90s. And 
I hadn't read some of that early stuff in a while. I hadn't seen this first Hellboy movie in a while. And watching the movie makes me want to go back and read the source material. You can do a lot worse things with $20 than going down to your local comic shop and buying Wake the Demon. I mean, that is Right. Or Seeds of Destruction. Oh, man. It's great stuff. It's so, so good. And they translate Mignola's designs really well mm-hmm. here in this film. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, at one point, Rasputin puts on this you know big, silly, ridiculous-looking sci-fi gauntlet thing, but it looks like it was ripped straight from the pages of a Hellboy comic book. It's yeah. got that big, chunky Mignola aesthetic. I mean, there's not just great direction going on here. There's great art direction. It is a right. unified universe that is blending all of these different aesthetics and all these different color palettes to really boil things down to this gray and blue with splashes of red and orange. And those are complementary colors. So a lot of the times they'll put Hellboy in a very blue or gray environment and he will pop against everything else. The snow in Russia, the underground places where they have him walking through. And that is just, it seems like common sense. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not. So many movies will get that wrong. Yes. And every frame of this film, it's so well shot and the cinematography is so good. Every frame is a painting is that old phrase they teach you in film class. Right, right. And when I watched The Shape of Water, that's what I came away with. That's what I enjoyed the most was the way uh, Del Toro shoots that stuff, the color choices he makes. The color of The Shape of Water really jumped out at me. But you know what? The story just didn't add up to anything for me so if i want that color palette i can go back and watch hellboy yeah yeah it'll be interesting if we uh revisit hellboy 2 at some point here in the near future i wonder if that holds up because i only ever Do saw we have to no no we don't have to i, I think <laughs> i think it was a very deliberate choice of ours to only watch the first one for this podcast um but yeah this is a absolutely a film that should be entered into the canon because it's it's not only really where the ball starts tumbling you know downhill in a positive sense for del toro where he starts gaining momentum Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i i think there's a strong argument to be made that it's one of his best i mean he's still pretty young so you know the the attitude i've tried to convey on this podcast about the canon is of course it's always changing and he might do something in the future that really knocks my socks off and i'll say well you know if i want to show somebody a del toro movie i'll show them whatever that is in the future, not Hellboy. But yeah. right now, looking at his whole career, I would show them the first Hellboy. Yeah, I think it's a toss-up between first Hellboy or Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, that got a lot of attention. Uh, I, I think it just depends on who your audience is. I right, think if you've got right. someone who's a, maybe a little less um, into comics mm-hmm. or a little less, you know, not necessarily into uh, the more science fiction stuff, yeah, definitely show them Pan's Labyrinth because that's a fairy tale. He's yes, making a, right. a fairy tale. Right. And I think it takes place in the Spanish Civil War, right? So he's, he's, he's also doing a historical fiction piece there with that, I believe. Are, are we going to do a podcast about Pan's Labyrinth? It's been a long time since I saw Pan's <laughs> Labyrinth. Um, but uh, if they are a fan of you know, the Marvel movies and any of the, you know, yes. any of the past 10 years of cinema, of, of well, superhero right. big budget cinema, this predates that by four years. Right, so that's another reason why this is worth doing uh, as a podcast at the very beginning of 2019 because we've got Marvel celebrating 10 years of their run but uh, you're absolutely right if people really like that you know if you want to see you know kind of weird otherworldly giant battle stuff like from dr strange yeah well here it is with a lot more grit 
and sliminess and texture than you see in Doctor Strange. And if you want a really sarcastic main lead who, you know, kind of snarks his way through all of his enemies and doesn't necessarily take any of them seriously, that doesn't start with Tony Stark. Right. I struggled. I don't think there's another superhero film that has that attitude before Hellboy. Everything else is very serious. You know, Batman Begins is a year after this. Obviously, all of the, the Tim Burton Batmans are very serious. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, superhero films take themselves very, very seriously on policy. And then Hellboy comes along and Hellboy certainly takes itself seriously, but it, it, I don't think Hellboy takes the threats that he's facing very seriously. Most of the time, I think he takes Rasputin seriously, but even towards the climax of this film with the giant squid old one thing, you know, he's just cracking jokes. He's just, you know, it's a good character. Yeah. He's He's more concerned about, you know his cigars and <laughs> yeah let's so this i think is our pitch is look everybody who's going to be sad when robert downey stops doing iron man you know in a few months go back and give yourself the treat of watching hellboy yeah absolutely all right well folks this has been the re view podcast, podcast.